0: Hey everyone, Sean here, bringing you a special throwback this week. If you're anything like me, you have spent a big chunk of your Q4 inside of the annual planning process for next year, getting your team ready for 2020, getting your go-to-market ready for 2020. And it reminded me of one of our really early episodes that we did where we took you inside that annual planning process at Salesforce.com with the guy who built it at Salesforce. So we're going to replay that early episode because we have a lot of new listeners who haven't heard it. And if you're in the middle of the planning process right now, Highly recommend listening to this so you can learn all the lessons that Bala Bala Balabaskaran had to learn along the way at Salesforce. Hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Whether you have five salespeople at your company or 5,000, chances are you go through some kind of annual planning process. What you probably don't have is a planning process that includes 400 people, 1,500 spreadsheets, and eight months' worth of iterations. But that's exactly what today's guest, Bala Balabaskaran, found when he got to Salesforce in 2012. Whether you're a veteran of the annual planning process or you're about to put together an operating plan for the first time, Bala is your guy. Today, we're going to go step-by-step through the actual planning process used at Salesforce.com, how to navigate that process, and as Bala calls it, the philosophical horse trading that happens along the way. By the end, you'll also get to learn what Bala was able to deliver for the first time in Salesforce's history. An engineer by training, Bala spent the earlier parts of his career at companies like Hewlett-Packard and Microsoft before joining Salesforce as the vice president of go-to-market technology and operations in 2012. So my natural first question for Bala... What the hell is a vice president of go-to-market technology and operations and what did salesforce look like when he joined in 2012.
1: um so salesforce you know uh, it was uh, a two billion dollar startup at that point you know <laughs> it, uh, it's, it's it's everything was uh fast moving it was a company that was uh growing roughly around 30 percent year over year and we were starting to do big and bigger acquisitions um, and uh, you know on the marketing cloud side we were starting to integrate these larger companies that uh, that we were acquiring, so it was a, it was a pretty crazy place, but there was a lot of fun, uh, you know great leadership um, enjoyed enjoyed my time there, yeah
0: And when you come in, what exactly is a VP of go to market technology and operations like chartered to do
1: yeah uh so my role uh was basically to support the distribution team which was basically the name for everything from lead to renewal right uh, that okay. entire entire flow and then uh, over the course of my four and a half years there i slowly sort of uh you know broke off the the whole responsibility to smaller chunks uh but basically it was uh, uh planning uh, so the go to market planning exercise uh, which is bringing together close to about 400 people across the company to go through the uh, planning process before and then the rollout of that. And then uh, we were also responsible for the business process, which is you know Salesforce's own instance of uh, Salesforce and how we used it internally. So everything from forecasting to all of the validation rules to workflows that we built uh, and any new features or... Uh, tools that we deployed for the uh, sales teams as well as sales leadership. So my pro- uh, my team was responsible for uh, sort of the business analysis and, and really kind of creating the design for what the business process uh, should look like and then working with IT to actually uh, implementing that. And then the third part of my uh, role was field operations. So this is basically making sure that uh, the data within the Salesforce instance was uh Good, which is you know a never-ending battle, but uh, but hmm. also uh, rolling out territories, managing the territories over the course of the year. So just the operational cadence around the field uh, teams, and uh, but but it didn't include like deal desk and commissions, but so we were mostly responsible for getting the commissions uh, data to the team, but uh, not actually doing the commissions work.
0: So I want to take each of those separately, if I can. Did I hear you right? You said 400 people are involved in the annual planning process at Salesforce at the time you were there.
1: That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we um, uh, had this philosophy that, uh, you know, the best information uh, really about the market came from our own people at the front lines. And uh, so this planning process really required us to uh, figure out a way to capture that uh, frontline knowledge. Uh, so we would involve uh, you know all of the sales managers down to the RVP level, and uh, it also involved uh, you know finance and HR and uh, we call employee success, and then uh, you know also a variety of other support teams that uh, needed to uh, be part of this process. And uh, the the process itself took about eight months. So we would start somewhere around August. Wow! All the way through to March and uh, Fe- February first was our fiscal start. Okay. And uh, you know when I started it was about 1500 reps and and uh, due to the acquisitions and uh, organic growth by the time I left it was close to 4500 uh, or so reps and uh, sure. you know in a variety of different roles so we had the core AES. Uh, but then we also have a number of support roles, overlay roles. All in all, about twenty-seven or so, I think the last count I had uh, uh, the different roles that were involved in the selling process and the supporting process, you know, through the lead to lead to renewal process uh, end to end. And uh, so it involved working with the managers for all of those different teams, and and really figuring out uh, you know how to get them involved into the into the planning process. So I can walk through kind of the, the yeah. major stages if that would be helpful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I guess I would love to hear those stages. I would also love to just understand from a scope perspective at a certain point, like, does it get easier even as that volume gets bigger? Right. So I'm thinking about it from the lens that I look through every day, which is about 60 reps and, you know, a much, much smaller group of people involved in a planning process. When you're talking about wrangling 400 people into a process for 4,500 reps across 27 different types of roles, at, at a certain point, do you hit this efficiency point where, okay, once we know the process, then we can just nail this 27 different times? Or is there 20 different flavors of complexity that are going into that?
1: uh there is 27 different flavors of complexity, <laughs> some, sometimes even even more so because uh you know e- even if you just took the core uh, ae roles there were many different ways in which uh the team resourcing was allocated uh, uh, you know based on industries based on size of the company based on special programs like hunter programs that we had so there's a variety of ways in which those resources were deployed and it wasn't necessarily all a uh, one size uh, fits all model right so it does get complex mm-hmm. and when i started we actually were doing this entirely on spreadsheets wow right? and uh, i think my uh, team had this high value job of pulling all of the spreadsheets together uh, during this planning process which was you know not a great value add not a great way to motivate your team Mm. But something that needed to be done to kind of get data into a central place where we can sort of analyze the impact and so on. So it's, it's a, you know, it does uh, uh, get complex.
0: I'd say it gets complex. 1,500 reps to 4,500 reps across 27 different roles, 27 different flavors of planning in a manual process in spreadsheets. So, yeah, I'd say complex is the right way to describe the process. By the way, the the next time you're thinking to yourself, oh, our processes are too manual, we don't have enough automation or systems in place, take solace in the fact that at 4,500 salespeople, Salesforce was still planning their year in spreadsheets with contributions from 400 different people. Anyways, this whole thing took Bala and his team eight months. Eight months, that's two-thirds of the year spent on this process. So here's what we're going to do. It's a a huge process, so we've got to break this thing down. If you aren't satisfied with the way your planning process went last year or you're already starting to look ahead to 2020, we're going to break this thing down to the six steps you need to follow to build an operating plan like Salesforce.com. All right, ready to go? Step one, analyze and refresh your data.
1: So from a stages standpoint, right, we would start in August uh, looking at the data and, and okay. uh, data internally within our Salesforce instance. You know, we had millions of uh, account information in our Salesforce instance. Uh, so we'll pull all that, look at all the data. We would analyze it for, um, you know, your to- uh, total addressable market and what that looks like, what our, what our market share looked like in different regions, all the way down to even states and uh, cities. And then um, largely, there was an exercise to update or refresh the data. Okay. And uh, we, were, we had close to um, 13 different data sources that we bought data from worldwide. DNB, of course, was one of the main ones, but we got into country-specific data, and especially when you get out to South America and, and APAC, the accuracy of the data gets very specific based on the source that you're looking at and for specific fields. So we really had to narrow it down to about thirteen or fourteen fields that were used in carving, uh, in how we built out our territories, and uh, focusing in on the data quality of those from a variety of different sources. So that uh, that took us about uh, you know two to three months just to get that process going. We had built um, an automation that uh, kind of created a survivorship rule set that uh, would. Figure out what's the you know best data source and what's the right place to pick a particular field from.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So like is that kind of like of, a
0: like a waterfall type situation where you're picking the is. best thing you can find. Got it.
1: That's right. That's right. And uh, you know part of that data source was also uh, incorporating our own uh, SDR notes, right? Because they they're on the street talking to a lot of customers. They. They tended to have the most accurate data, actually. Uh, believe it or not, compared mm. to uh, third-party data sources. Uh, so we had to figure out a way to, you know, bring that into the process. And so, you know, it took it took us about two to three months, kind of getting all of that done. Once it's all done, then we would do the tab analysis. And because our segmentation uh, in some businesses were driven by the employee size. There was a natural disruption that was caused by uh, just uh, companies growing, right? So they would go from an yeah. SMB segment to a mid-market segment to a to a corporate segment, and so on. So that analysis was important uh, for us to do. So we understood, you know, how the customers were progressing into various segments and the, what's the best uh, sort of program to support them with, and, and that's uh, that's part
0: of the analysis that we did. And did you only refresh companies like that on that annual exercise, or were you doing that more frequently throughout the year?
1: The pain was so much that we only did it once. <laughs>
0: Without, <laughs>
1: and I think it's, it's, it's also this annual process of refreshing data. And yeah. because we bought data from a number of sources, uh, just the process of kind of pulling all of that together to do a refresh, uh, we only did that annually. Got it. You know, the easier uh, approach would have been to say there is one source of truth. You know, say D and B, and that's all we're going to take. But when you get out of the U.S. and you go into the international markets, that data becomes pretty terrible very quickly. Mm. And uh, so then we were planning with, uh, you know, it'd be easier for us as a ops team, but it would be uh, the resulting plans would not necessarily reflect reality. So, so we had to sort of take on that burden.
0: This is going to be one of those steps that's hard for people outside of ops to appreciate, but setting up the infrastructure and hierarchy of those different data sources is no joke. And Bala's spot on. It would be much easier to just use one source of truth, stick to that, and ignore everything else. Analyzing, refreshing your data, it's not sexy, but it lays the foundation for a successful planning process. Okay, step one is in the books. On to step two, capacity planning.
1: And uh, so once we finished with that process, then uh, came the capacity modeling exercise. So this is really taking an ROI lens to the investment that we're making in sales and distribution and uh, work very closely with finance during this process. You know, you get your revenue targets for next year. And again, the targets were a range, right, because we would be doing this in Q4, And the business wouldn't have closed yet. So we wouldn't know where we would exactly land. And uh, so there is variability in the numbers. And as we got closer and closer to the uh, end of the fiscal, we'll get better numbers. But uh, we needed to be very in tune with uh, uh, finance to make sure that we
0: were keeping an eye on that. Bala told me that part of keeping in tune with finance meant that targets for the following year were constantly fluctuating based on the team's performance in the last quarter of the year. So if you blow out your number in Q4, guess what? Your number for the following year is probably going up. Or as Bala told me, no good deed goes unpunished. The output of this step in the process, most importantly though, is how many people go where. Once you've got that capacity nailed, it's time to get a little bit more specific. Step three, segmentation.
1: And then, uh, so the effort sort of breaks off into two different angles. And one is uh, really uh, looking at our high level segmentation. So this is all of the different business units, uh, enterprise, corporate, you know, small, medium business, uh, verticals. Uh, so we'll start to look at what those high level segmentation would look like for us. This is also where we did a lot of analysis around uh, international expansion, for instance, right? So got it you really have to kind of think about investment in sales not in a single fiscal year but a multi-year horizon right because uh, when you're investing in a area that you're growing you probably won't see results for a couple of years mm. so th- those kind of uh you know that's it's sort of a balancing act right where do, where do we invest if we invest what's our return horizon look like and and the feeling really is is that of a, of a vc investing in a startup right <laughs> And you would really yeah. look at uh, look at the business and say okay if i put in this much dollars what do i expect in in two years and and so on um,
0: and that's really interesting because you I mean you said that even though you know the company had been around for you know 13 14 years at that point by the time you got there it still had that startup mentality when you're going through that segmentation exercise has Salesforce at that point, if they nailed their segments, okay, these are our segments, we know this is how they're going to work. Or are some of those things still in flux? And are, did any of those things change at that point? A lot of things are in
1: flux. Um, mm. So that the part of being a startup is you're constantly re- re-evaluating everything. Right? Sure. And, uh, and so there was a mix of uh, what you will see in the data with uh, philosophical debates at the leadership level right um, you know should we be expanding internationally and some people will feel very strongly that you should do that others would say no double down on this vertical that's producing more uh, more returns for us so again it's a you know i i i always looked at that as like philosophical host trading uh, <laughs> where people would go back and forth and and finally kind of you know take a mark or a key block to come in and settle things down but at the end of it we we got some numbers, right?
0: Philosophical horse trading has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? I really like the way Bala compares investing in a sales segment to a VC investing in a startup. You're placing multi-year bets on a segment, a business unit, an experiment. Now, not everyone is going to have a couple years like Salesforce to see if an experiment bears out, but the same principles apply. It's a balancing act. What are your goals? What's the timeline? When are you going to see results? So, okay, We've got our segments. Up next, step four, workforce and territory planning. At Salesforce, Bala told me that they set up the career ladder for sales folks in such a way that when reps got promoted, they got promoted into different segments. So interviews are taking place in the midst of all of this planning to determine how many and which reps would be in each specific role and also which territory they would be in. So once you have that workforce in place, you move on to step five, quota planning. Using the capacity modeling we talked about earlier, Bala said that they would consider things like ramp, which territory you're in, which role you're going to be in, to determine the quotas across the sales team. Now, one thing Bala and I didn't go deep into was the world of comp planning, but that is a crucial part of this process, and I'm going to save that for a different episode. After step five of quota planning, we got to the part that I really wanted to dig into. Step six, the rollout and the aftershocks the process for taking months of work and putting it out there into the world the communication involved in that and how that process evolved over the course of bala's time at salesforce
1: the idea was that uh, you know first of uh, the fiscal year uh, in february we would uh, we would take uh, a couple of weekends to roll out all these changes into into salesforce and uh, it, uh, believe it or not, it actually took us a lot longer than that. Um, it used to be right. about 60 days after the start of the fiscal that we would have uh, all the roles with their territories and so on. And that was because we were essentially data loading spreadsheets, right? Wow. And uh, we, would, uh, we would run into errors and, you know, assumptions that were made during carving, you know, and, and, and the carving spreadsheets were a point in time snapshot of the data. And, uh, right, and things
0: have probably changed at that point.
1: Exactly, you know. Uh, the, one great example is, uh, you know, we would build out these hunter territories, which were supposed to be all prospects, and then by the time we got to Q4 and we rolled this out, you know, thirty percent of them would have become customers. Uh, <laughs> right? They were not truly hunter territories anymore, right? Uh, so that was kind of stuff, right? So we we had to deal with all those while we we're rolling stuff out, and there's a lot of reconciling of differences, right?
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So it's one thing, right, to have everything in a spreadsheet, right? It looks great in a spreadsheet when you're looking at it in a vacuum. And then when you start to hit that real world component or you're starting to roll this thing out and put it in front of the teams, they're going to have to live within it every single day. First of all, I'm curious, what does it look like at a scale of 4,500 reps the communication around rolling this out? And then inevitably when you get the feedback and the questions and the hand raising after the fact, how do you deal with that?
1: Right. Right. Um, So we had a process once uh, the planning stuff was locked down, we had a process of communicating what we called quota letters. And so the quota letters would basically describe uh, the territory that was carved, uh, some of the metrics associated with that territory and what the quota looks like. I, uh, for that particular territory, so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the comp plan. it was basically the structure of the territory that would go out and uh, we would uh, provide those to managers and the managers would then have discussion with their with their people. so we needed to have a way of disseminating all of this before we put in some automation, all of this was done using spreadsheets. and so a manager would get a spreadsheet that explained how the territories were carved, what are the metrics that were used for carving and balancing those territories. Uh, so they'll be able to sort of explain the philosophy behind the territory that someone got, right? And uh, of course, you know, fifty percent of the people were happy with it, fifty percent. <laughs> um, so, but but that's that's kind of the the dissemination of information. But uh, the, the the challenge that uh, we dealt with there was, you know, as as the. Territories got smaller and smaller and smaller because we were growing at about 30% uh, year over year, which mm. meant that everybody's territories, you know, we had to take 30% of the accounts out of everybody's territories to create new territories. And uh, so that was sort of a process that we gave the managers control over, uh, the frontline managers control over which accounts to sort of release. And they did this based on not wanting to disrupt the customer relationship. Right? So if they mm-hmm. felt like the AE had a strong relationship with the customer that they would want to make sure that that continuity was there and and, uh, and so on. So, uh, you know, we'll, uh, as part of the data exercise up front, we would get, get this uh, list of accounts that uh, we can pull out of territories and kind of create new territories from. So as the territories got smaller and smaller, the impact of, let's say, bad data was pretty huge. Yeah. Right? So you could you could end up pulling out. Uh, an account of a sizable potential out of somebody's territory. And that could totally destroy their, their uh, money-making. A year. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I
0: love that you though, even with the scale that you're at are still putting that customer at the center of this entire process, right? There's process for everything, but the fact that you still have that customer relationship at the center of that is, is amazing to me. And when you think about like, you know, I think one of the trends that we have talked about in the way that you approach things is you approach it from this kind of architect mentality. And I think one of the things that can be really difficult for folks that are inside of these companies that are in hyper growth are one of the things that can be difficult is balancing solving for the problem that's in front of you right now and planning for the problems that are going to exist tomorrow. Right. How do you think about that? And I think the, the planning for 30%, you know, smaller territories is a great example of that. Like, how do you balance that all while going through that, that rapid growth?
1: I mean, I think, you know, one of the philosophies that everybody at the top leadership, you know, kind of subscribe to, as you said, is that the customer experience has to be the center of what we did. Mm. And uh, that's not just from the interaction that uh, the customer-facing roles had with the customer, but also what we did from a process perspective to not disrupt that, right? For a growing company like Salesforce was at that point, if you just kept kept changing you know reps around every year you're not going to build continued relationships and especially that was bad for mid market and enterprise accounts where you needed mm. that 18 month runway to close a deal right or no, 12 to 18 mm. month runway to close a deal so you can't yank people out and put other people in and and so from a process perspective it would have been easier for us to optimize for the uh, operations process but we always kind of looked at uh, two things prior to doing that. One is the customer experience. And the other thing is uh, really the sales, uh, sales team flexibility, right? Yeah. Um, the way that, uh, you know, we strongly believe that the flexibility that we give our frontline managers in terms of how they manage their business was a competitive advantage compared to other companies. And uh, because... Interesting. Can you give that, me an example? Um, an example would be, you know, uh, uh, being sensitive to what's going on in a particular region, in terms of business in terms of competition in terms of partners mm. that are available so the managers really needed uh, also flexibility on how they allocated the resources right that uh, uh, you know if you have people that were performing well people that were not performing well uh, how do you make sure your deals are still progressing without uh, you know while dealing with the challenges of managing a team right and uh, you know, we could have been, from a, from a sales operations perspective, rigid and said, no, you don't get any flexibility. This is the territory allocated to this person. And that's the only thing that uh, you know, they can work on. Or you give the managers the flexibility to kind of deal with um, uh, day-to-day stuff that happens right, uh, in the course of running your business.
0: Let's face it. Everything looks good on paper. The plan always looks great before you have to actually execute on it. While I'm sure Bala and his team believed in their plan, he more strongly believed that the flexibility they gave their frontline managers was a competitive advantage to the team at Salesforce. I was thinking about it, and I think Bala is the first guest we've had who has pointed out that the specific practices of his team were a competitive advantage to his company. Not a feature, not a price, but the operations team itself was the competitive advantage. That's pretty cool. By the way, did you catch that Bala said this rollout process used to take up to two months? He said that sometimes during this murky transition time at the beginning of a year, they literally used a policy called sell what you see, which basically means if it's in your name in Salesforce, go after it. He called this period of time after the initial rollout the aftershocks.
1: Once the rollout happened, then we had what I would call aftershocks, right? And so this is... (laughs) You know, we were looking to hire managers in in certain regions, so the planning would have to be done by, you know, their manager or somebody else in Q4. And so, we, when you finally hire that person in in January, February, when the fiscal starts, they'll look at the plans that were created and go, "Oh no, no, no! This is not how I want to do it. I want to like rearrange everything, right?" So we literally dealt with a series of aftershocks. Once the territories were communicated, of course, people disagreed with uh, accounts that they lost or opportunities or the holdouts that were given to them. So my operations team, uh, which was about 28 people, and uh, they kind of dealt with all of the uh, day-in, day-out data problems and also just arguments around uh, territories, right? It's said, hey, Got this it. account would be mine. Rules of
0: engagement, Yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and uh, believe it or not, at the time that I started, that wasn't codified into a policy, right? It was more of an operational document uh, that the ops team operated. So uh, one of my first uh, things to do was actually to make a case to hire a person responsible for sales policies and put that person outside of my team, you know, from a separation of duty standpoint, I didn't want my team to be the one writing the rules and executing it. <laughs> so, the,
0: this, uh, so this policy person was like Switzerland; it was their job to to come up with these right. policies, absent that's of right. any that's right. bias.
1: That's correct. Yeah, and it, w- it was more of a strategy thing, right? And and so uh, coming up with this required coordinating across the sales leadership, getting approvals. Like, what what kind of things can we do? What can and things can't be do. For instance, you know, a simple thing around splits, how do you handle splits on an international deal, right? Hmm. Or how do you handle um, mergers and acquisitions throughout the year, right? Do you, um, what this meant was if a company was acquired by another one, do you take it out of one person's territory and put it to where the where the person, the, the acquiring company was, or do you let it sit like that until we go through next year? right? And and we decide to take the changes next year. So these were all policy decisions that had to be made. And those were all written down. And even to the point where changes in employee count uh, that would cross a segment line, for instance, when do you take that change? Do you take that change middle of the year? Or do you wait for next year to kind of affect that change? And so the stability Uh, of the... Yeah.
0: I was just gonna say, I, I can't tell you how good it makes me feel to know that Salesforce, at fifteen hundred reps, didn't have this stuff figured out. For those right. of us that are like in the trenches every single day, figuring these things out, right. you know, it, it it makes you feel good that the the companies that you aspire to be like also fa- face the exact same problems.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, you'll be surprised though. All the bad data issues, or you know, how to handle how to handle bad data. Like, what is defined mm-hmm. as a duplicate, right? even to that level uh, those things had to be codified into into policies and uh, then what happens is that once you codify something into policy that becomes sort of the standard operating model you're no longer running your business on exceptions right Mm -hmm. And, and salesforce was very famous for this in the sense that we had a ticketing process and anybody could submit a ticket to have something looked at and my team for 4,500 reps throughout the year, we process about 23,000 tickets. Yeah. And this would be data issues. This would be, uh, hey, here's a subsidiary that should be linked to my, uh, a company that I own in my territory, but it's not linked, you know, kind of uh, those kinds of requests. And this was all international stuff it was really hard to really catch that up front. And, uh, you know, all the way up to, hey, manager, I want to reorganize my, you know, an RVP saying I want to reorganize my territories because I have, uh, I have a mismatch in the skill set of the person working on that territory. Right. So, so all, all of those kinds of issues, uh, we would we would process them as tickets. But what made life easier is when you have those codified as policies, yeah. you could actually turn away 30 percent of those tickets because they were not according to policy.
0: Yeah, no, no way you're able to process that volume without some sort of reference point.
1: That's right. And the side effect, of course, of, of uh, writing down these policies is that now you can automate it, mm. right? And uh, so that's really where we engaged. Uh, you know, we had uh, two dedicated scrum teams to help my team, and we had, uh, you know, some of our leadership go fight for budget, and we had a three-year program that, we, that was really about improving... The automation around a lot of these things, and uh, you know that, is, and, and all of the automation was done based on the policies that have been documented because now it becomes repeatable, right? And uh, that's that's really the secret sauce is is really if you can make it repeatable, then you can automate it. If you can automate it, then you can you know scale, and that's really the the learning for me.
0: Yeah, of course, and, and the. The process that you originally described with 400 people and uh, I think you originally told me 1500 different spreadsheets. What does that right. look like in the after picture once you've added some of this automation and scalability to the process?
1: Yeah, so we built a, uh, we built a system um, customized, uh, custom built on Salesforce, within Salesforce to really be the planning platform. Uh, right. And so we built a, an environment that would um, suck data from our transactional runtime system into this org that basically contained uh, data for planning. And we would enable a sync between the two on, uh, on a periodic basis. But the idea was then all of the planners were working off of the same set of data. Right? Mm-hmm. So you're not dealing with copies of data, uh, <laughs> but you're, but you're uh, you know, all looking at the same data at the same time so when people move things around you would see that in the system as opposed to on your spreadsheet right? so that kind of reduced a lot of the semantic issues that we dealt with even just definitional issues that we dealt with right um, uh, like what is uh, the definition of this segment here versus in another region like right? uh, in europe the mid market could be you know, from employee range, this to this versus in the US, that would be much smaller, right? So Mm -hmm. those kinds of definitional challenges were also easier to deal with now that you had one place that you're putting everything into.
0: Right, they're all systematized.
1: That's right. And and in addition to that, we also had not just the people that were carving the territories, but as I mentioned, we also have the employee success team that's now, uh, or the HR team that's actually working on who do we promote into what roles, and how many people we, you know, do we need to go hire? What's the pipeline for that look like? All of that data was also now being put into the same place, which allowed us to sort of compare and contrast kind of the territory structure we were building with the people that would go into them, right? And uh, and that allowed for a much simpler process in terms of planning. And we didn't have people that you know who sold jobs was to put spreadsheets back, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know they could do much more higher value stuff like analyze this data and provide suggestions, right?
0: And I was doing it would have made it more transparent too,
1: right? It did. It did. Now that transparency also has its challenges, right? Because <laughs> of course, when you expose a lot of the planning data to uh, even people at the frontline level, there could be adverse reactions to the current year sales. Right. So if you know that you're going to lose these bunch of accounts next year, you probably won't invest time in Right. And uh, so we had to be careful about when we revealed what to what level of uh, the organization. And uh, the best part, of course, at the end of this is that uh, we could just sync the data from this planned environment into our uh, live production system. Right, and, and so that process of pushing the data out no longer involved running data loader on, a, on like 15, 20 machines at the same time uh, to now more of an integrated process where the, the data would naturally flow from this central environment into the production environment.
0: Bala's secret sauce, if you can make it repeatable, then you can automate it. If you can automate it, then you can scale. By the way, for the record, In Bala's final planning cycle at Salesforce, after three years of tweaks and improvements to the planning process and to creating this centralized system, for the first time in company history, territories were delivered to all of the reps before their annual kickoff. Not two months later, no more aftershocks. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready, here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months?
1: I'm not a great reader, uh, but uh, one that I read is uh, "The Learnings from a Sheepdog." I actually don't know who the author is. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> learnings from a sheepdog? What's it about? Uh, it's basically about uh, the way that a sheepdog approaches, uh, you know, what they're supposed to be doing, and uh, and uh, things about loyalty and and. Uh, uh, structure and so on. Yeah, cool. I'll have to check it out. Favorite
0: part about working in our, in ops?
1: I think just the variety of challenges. No, no two days are the same. And especially if you uh, if you are inclined to problem solving, this is a great place to be because every day you face a different challenge. That, you know, as as you you can tell, even in a smaller organization, you face the same type of challenges that a large organization would face. Just that the scale is different. Right, uh, but there's always a lot of troubleshooting.
0: Least favorite part about working in ops:
1: uh, late nights, uh, <laughs> especially when those uh, when those uh, timeframes uh, come up for you know rolling out stuff, or you're responsible for production success of the business. Right, so those are not
0: really fun, but those are an inherent part of what you need to do. I can sense a lot of people listening nodding their heads on that one uh <laughs> someone who impacted you getting the job you have today
1: the job i have today is uh you know i would have to say my partner um Singh Singh, and uh, we kind of looked at this whole problem and had a vulcan mind meld on you know <laughs> if we could do this ba- <laughs> we could do this uh, and really bring all of our learnings across you know i've known him for 13 plus years, uh, across Microsoft and Salesforce is, so, you know, we kind of went, oh my God, wait, this is, this is a pain that we can, we can really solve and, and bring it down to the mid market who can't afford to throw resources at this.
0: Yeah. I love that. I can take all the pain points you just described over the, the time we've been talking and draw a, a straight line to the work you guys are doing at Fullcast. It's That's amazing. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday.
1: I think, you know, uh, you kind of alluded to it. I, I believe that uh, you you have to think about the long-term, right? Whenever, uh, but you also have to balance that with short, uh, solving something for the short-term. Everything that you pick up is not as easy as it seems right away, right? And so just kind of building that mentality of, you know, how do we, how do we think about this in the long-term? How do we think about it for scale? Uh, especially in ops, I think that's the most important thing. I had a, a boss of mine who used to say that, uh, you know, solve the process first before you solve the problem. For me, that's just the thinking that from an ops perspective, uh, like, you know, you take a job, like uh, you're responsible for deduping and cleaning up data, well, you could be doing that forever, hmm. uh, unless you figure out how to how to turn off the faucet that's throwing in the bad data, right? So, you know, always think about, think about it from that standpoint. I think the uh, scale long-term, if you ask those questions, then I think it will reveal a, a whole new interesting side to ops that you'll find very exciting.
0: Thank you so much to Bala for joining us on today's show and giving us that step-by-step framework for how to build an operating plan. By the way, as we mentioned, Bala now is the co-founder of Fullcast.io, where they're building software to help link that sales planning process to operational execution. So go ahead and check them out. Thanks so much for everybody for tuning in and listening. Uh, Leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying the show. If you have some feedback for Bala or for myself, you can tweet at me, at ShawneeBiz leave me a message on LinkedIn. Uh, That's going to do it for us for this week. We'll see you next time.